Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 35, and we'll go to verse 40. It says, The Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these beautiful, good, strong, clear words from you. Lord, we pray that as we look into them, that you would bless all of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, we've been in chapter 6 for a while, and the context is one where we're, we're still dealing with that crowd following the miraculous feeding that happened, the feeding of the 5,000. He's, uh, he's confronted the people regarding their motives. Why are they continuing to follow Jesus? He's, he's been talking to, to them about that. In verse 26, Jesus tells the people that, they're not, that they were seeking him not because he had performed signs, but because they ate of the loaves and were filled. They wanted his free food, to put it rather bluntly. They wanted his handouts. So he redirects them, telling them, Rather than working for that food, work for the food that endures to eternal life. And they respond by asking Jesus what kind of work he has in mind. Well, if you've told us to work, what what sort of work should we do? He tells the people a very simple thing. He says, believe in me. Believe in the one whom the Father had sent to them. He tells them simply to put their faith in Him. Not content with that answer, of course, they ask for a sign. All the things they could have asked for. They could have asked for a sermon. They could have asked for an explanation, some more words. But they ask Him for a sign at this point. Ignoring the many signs that they had already received. Originally, they followed Him 
to, be, to, the, to the feeding because they had seen his signs. And then they saw that sign. And now they ask him for a sign. It's as if they're asking him for a sign because they want to be able to finally trust him. Right? Moses, they mention Moses. Moses had given them bread from heaven, they claim. You know, they bring that up. Well, Moses, Moses did what you did. Huh. You know, and it fed them for a long time. And Jesus corrects them again and says, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. The bread of Moses merely sustained their bodies. The bread of heaven, the true bread of heaven, Jesus himself, the bread of God, that bread gives those who partake of it by faith Life eternal. It's quite a difference. Eat the one food and you're hungry in three hours. Right? Eat the other food and you never hunger again. And you never thirst again. The last thing we looked at was uh, previously was the people of the crowd responding to Jesus' statement about the true bread with this request. Lord, always give us this bread. Calvin said that that statement was not a genuine expression of faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he believes they were saying it ironically. Oh my, you, you, uh, you can get us this bread that's better than manna? Bring it on, hotshot. I mean, that's the sort of, it's like they're, they're provoking him with the statement. The people are not getting what Jesus is saying. He is clearly telling them that he... He is the bread of life. He is the bread that they need. And they are still wavering and thinking only of physical, tummy-filling, sourdough, wheat, rye, bread. So now in our text this morning, Jesus uses the rest of his interaction with the people of this crowd to make what he's saying explicit. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Okay, point blank statement. Okay, guys, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see how he's, he's focused that whole verse on himself. I, he who comes to me, and he who believes in me. I mean, it, it couldn't be stated more clearly. He states that he's the bread. It is not the bread they ate the day before that he offers them. It is not the manna that nourished their, you know, their father's bodies in the wilderness. It is he himself that he offers them. Who is it that will not hunger? Who is it will, that will not thirst? It is, as Jesus says in verse 25, he who comes to me and he who believes in me. Very simple. Come to me, believe in me. Once again, he points toward himself and calls the people of this crowd to believe in him. And, and we, we must do the same thing. Any man, woman, child in any age must do the same thing. Come to Jesus and believe in him. We are saved by faith. 
dear brothers and sisters. Saved by faith, it's not by our works, it's not by our excellence, it's not by our building up or borrowing from some treasury of merit. Right? It is not because your parents believe. It is not because you've been baptized. It's not because you came to church this morning. It's not because you have spoken in tongues. Right? It is not because you are slightly more righteous than some other people you know. The only way of salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. You must come to Him and you must believe in Him. You must put all your trust in Him and hold to Him as the one mediator between God and man. Right? You must believe in your heart that He rose from the dead. You must come to Him for the only food that can sustain eternally. You you need soul food, right? And He's the only one who has it. The Council of Trent hates that message. Council of Trent, right? You guys know the Council of Trent? Really old council. 1545 to 1563. The Council of Trent was the official Catholic response to the Reformed faith, right? They had to get their ducks in a row, and they needed to come up with a response to all these rebels. And this is still the the official doctrine of the Roman church, right? They denied this truth about faith alone being the way of salvation. Here's what they said. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the actions of his own will, let him be damned. That's what they said. If you believe in faith alone, that that doesn't somehow bring your own will into it in combination with, with, you know, 50% of God's will or some percentage of God's will, then let him be damned, right? They're pronouncing a curse on all of Protestant faith. And so not believing Jesus' words in this passage, such as we are looking at this morning, the Roman Catholic, the good ones anyway, seek for justification through a combination of grace and his own works. They believe in Jesus, but only so far as the things they do leave any kind of gap. Justification for the Roman Catholic, get this, justification for a Roman Catholic lies off in the future and does not correspond, as we would say, with faith in regeneration every bit of which is a gift from God, right? Faith, regeneration, all a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Remember Christ's words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Without that new birth, that work of God, that, that rebirth, there is no coming to Christ and no believing in him. Whatever works could be done by someone who is not born again, Right? Whatever works could be done by someone who is not born again would amount to exactly zero, squat, nothing. In fact, it would be a huge negative on the register. 
those works are just a mound of sin because, as Scripture says, the only works that are pleasing to God are those done by faith. So whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, that's really good news. That is stupendously good news, that salvation is by faith alone, isn't it? It's, it is the best news you've, you've ever heard, right? We're saved by faith. We come to Jesus and believe in him, both, both of which follow regeneration, which is God's work, and the soul then has the eternal nourishment it needs. Let me also say this, that nourishment, that nourishment on the bread of life himself, on, on Jesus Christ himself, is the only satisfying thing in this world. How do I know this? Well, because the word of God teaches it. And I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And there's been nothing else that is satisfied like the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. The main point is that the things of this world do not satisfy. It's one of the main points. They are all, he says, uh, Solomon says, they're all vapor. Everything you think is substantial outside of Christ is vapor. right? Barely visible, just not, not able to... Um, you can only just barely perceive them but not see them. And so Solomon writes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. This is chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. And it's prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is a vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied even with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and it goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity it never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, don't all go to the same place. He finishes this way. He says, all a man's labor is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What, are the eye, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility. This too is vaporous and striving after wind. In a prayer of David in Psalm 17, we're given the contrast between those who seek to be satisfied with the things of the world and those who seek to be fed, to be satisfied on God himself, he speaks of men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. 
I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Right? So many people satisfied with that inheritance and satisfied with children. And, 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 and David says, no, I'll be satisfied with you and with you alone. And Jesus held before the people of the crowd himself. That's what he did. He, he offered them the bread of life on very good terms. Faith. Faith in me, he says. Believe in me. But, Jesus says next, I said to you that you have seen me. And then what does he say? And yet you don't believe. They have resisted this call to him. That is evidenced by their, right, by this continuing fixation on physical bread. They're not getting it. Their eyes don't seem to be open to this. Um, they're, they would still rather have the things of this world than eternal life. There are as many of us uh, that may continue to desire those things as well. We really would rather have pleasure and ease in this life, and we really don't give a thought for the life to come. Simply, we just want ease now. We would rather have friends than be godly. Right? We would rather join the rat race, whatever race it may be, than wait for heaven. Right? That was uh, true of that crowd, even though they even set their physical eyes on the Son of God Himself. They were unimpressed by His miracles. They have done uh, the cost-benefit analysis and think they can do far better themselves in the future. Somehow, right? Jesus, though, is not astonished by their unbelief. He's not astonished by it, right? He's not aghast. He's not like, <gasps> He says to these unbelieving food seekers, this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I mean, Jesus is not there left depending upon the will of man to determine who would come to him. He's not saying that. He's like, you know, um, he knows as the Spirit revealed earlier in John that those who do believe in him will have been born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He knows that. And so he's, he's nonplussed by their unbelief. Now, this is the way that proud men want it to be. Um, to do it on their own, right? To not, that it is a part of their will. This is what the proud man wants. The proud man always wants to assert his own will. And that is what will result in whatever outcome comes. Right? But... but but in the, So the proud man would object to God's methods here. I mean, aren't we, as we come to this, this text, saying, well, 
Jesus, make them Christians. Make them Christians. If it depends upon the will of God, then send your spirit to make these men and women Christians. And, and I say that that is precisely what, what it would take and the means that Jesus uses to reveal his father's choice or election is his preaching about the father's will. So here he is, right? The people are unbelieving and he says, you're not going to come to me unless the father gives you to me, right? And that's going to be the means where some will come to him. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. That is going to be the means. That kind of preaching is going to be the means of some coming to him. There will be some that day who heard him, who as the scripture says, are appointed to eternal life. They will believe. Jesus does not at all hide the fact that the ultimate Reason for their salvation is simply the will of God and his decree. He doesn't hide it. He preached this. Unlike so many today who are scandalized by such a doctrine, this doctrine of election, Jesus didn't shy away from it and, and was happy to speak of, our, of the ultimate cause of salvation. Now think of this as a Jew. Think of this as a Jew. Those in that crowd presumed they were God's chosen people. They presumed it. They were the kind of people the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 2. They bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that they are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teaching of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. They had it going on. Right? They were the Jews, and yet the Apostle Paul concludes saying, that all of that was nothing if it was what they were relying on for their salvation. The external things are not enough. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And of course, you know that the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans goes on to talk about election too. Right? The, the, the thickest section of that book is on the doctrine of election. He addresses head on the issue that might be in your mind today. Jesus is calling them to faith and then saying that it is only those who the Father has chosen who will come. And you think that that is perhaps unfair. He calls them to come. They don't come. He says they haven't come because his Father hasn't given them to him. You think that that is unfair. You think that that method is ridiculous. How can God blame those who don't come if they don't come because he hasn't chosen them? Well, here's the answer. <laughs> First argument that is put forward to this doctrine is it makes God unfair. Well, Paul answers that. He says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So then it does not depend. Listen, I mean, if that isn't explicit enough, God's going to do what he wants, right? If you need more than that, he says, so then it depends not on the man who wills or the man who runs those works. It doesn't depend on that, but on God who has mercy. That's what it depends on, right? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then there's a second argument that comes along uh, against election that Paul the Apostle mentions in Romans 9. The second argument is, well, if that's how it works, then why does God still find fault? Why, is, why, why does he still condemn people? And here's Paul's very sophisticated, apologetically masterful answer. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So his answer to the question is, you know, God can't find fault. That objection is, be quiet, man. God made you. God is like a potter who takes a lump of clay and does whatever he wants with it. He may have mercy. He may not have mercy. It's satisfying, isn't it? It's a satisfying answer. The most satisfying answer of Scripture does not get into the nuts and bolts of an answer, right? It doesn't get into the decrees of God. It doesn't get into, you know, the, the not absolute parallelism between election, reprobation. I mean, it just doesn't get into any of that that the theologians have worked out. But his answer is, be quiet. Don't un-God God in your theology. God is above all. And God will do whatever he desires to do. <clears throat> God is God. It is his decision. And somehow that does not satisfy people. They'd rather that everything be left up to them. That's the other option. It all depends on you. Your salvation depends on you. They'd rather unseat God and make him dependent and make, him, make God responsive somehow to man and make make God teachable in order to guard him against the charge of being unfair. You know, you, you have to like substantially diminish God so that you can protect him from being leveled with that charge of being unfair. Many would rather elevate man to the point where God has to wait for him than content themselves with God's choice. They would have man make a choice for God in order to protect God's reputation. That's twisted. They would rather have man be in limbo until he makes an independent decision so that their idea of what is fair and not fair can be sustained. And the Holy Spirit says hogwash. The Holy Spirit inspired hogwash to all of that is Romans. 
Romans 9. God is the potter, man is the clay. The clay never, ever, ever, ever tells the potter what to make of itself. The clay sits there and is manipulated by the potter. That's it. That's the only thing that ever happens. And here is Jesus confronting these lost people on that day, putting before them the command to come and saying that those who come will be those chosen by the Father. And and people won't preach election because they think it will undercut God's people coming to Jesus. But Jesus did it. (laughs) I mean, Jesus did it. And what shall we say then? Shall we be holier than Jesus and avoid it? Perhaps we might find that preaching election that God will call you if he decides would bring hope to many people who have been striving and striving and striving to impress God with their ridiculously petty works. Maybe there would be hope in that. It's faith and God does the work. Perhaps it would be refreshing for some to hear that God is God and man is not. You're not a little God. You're just a man. You're dust. But God loves you and knows you and fashioned you. God is God and can do all things and man is incapable down to the core that this world is the outworking of the will of an omnipotent omniscient, benevolent God who works all things to the praise of His glory. That's glorious. That's good news. Perhaps putting forward the incompetence of man might just shake some people loose of the delusions they've kept up about their competence their entire lives. I mean, this is Christianity. And I've said it before, but Christianity just annihilates man. It just destroys him, brings him down to nothing so that God can be everything. When we are so stupid and petty, it really is hard to maintain the delusion that we are gods. (laughs) In some sort of pantheon where the the one true living God is, is just one of billions. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so the other side of this is the wonderful news that, God, that what God has accomplished can't be undone. What he has accomplished can't be undone. If the work of salvation is just of man, well then it can be undone. What Jesus is teaching here is that What God has joined together, no man can separate. Where the Spirit is regenerated, there will be perseverance to the end. Jesus does not cast out one who is born in Zion. They are safe forever. They are His. And though all the forces of Satan and hell come against that believer, they will never prevail. They they are united to Christ. And Christ doesn't ever hack off a part of His body. He does not do that. Right? Those that are Christ, those that Christ saves are, are given to him by an everlasting covenant made between him and his father before the very foundation of the world. 
And some would rather leave things an open question. No, dear brothers and sisters, believers are not transported out of this world when they believe. Neither are they made perfect and stop sinning. So we continue to be weak in our faith. We sin against God. We wrestle with our flesh. And we need to hear Jesus say He will not cast us off. We desperately need to hear that He will not cast us off because we live in this in this limbo. We live in this, the flesh and the spirit waging war against one another. Ryle says our past lives may have been very bad. Our present faith may be very weak. Our repentance and prayer may be very imperfect and poor. Our knowledge of religion may be very scanty, but do we come to Christ? That is the question. If so, the promise belongs to us. Christ will not cast us out. Now at this point, Jesus turns to the will of his Father. Jesus submits himself to the will of his Father because that is what sons are to do with their fathers. That is what sons, how sons relate to fathers. Right? Because of Jesus and the Father. Right? They being the first son and father. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Just think about that for a moment in what we just talked about. Election and election being the will of the Father. Right? Here Jesus is saying, um, I mean, we, we've just got done talking about the, the uh, will of man, the complexities of it within God's election. And Jesus has highlighted his father's will in that choice. Now he states that his will, the son of God's will, is submitted to his father's will. I mean, in a sense, it's a potter and clay sort of situation. Even with the son of God, God himself. So much so that the father said, go, and Jesus left heaven. He's being that good soldier. He's being, he is not independent of his father. He is doing and saying what his father commanded of him. And the command was, go, leave heaven, leave my side, do everything I've commanded you, and don't get creative. I'm going to tell you what to say. And all that he did was for you. All that humiliation. All that condescension was for you. The Father, the Father gives the commands, the Son obeys the commands, and you get all the benefits if you are in Christ. You get all the benefits of this eternal work just by faith. This is the will of Him who sent me that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You are the beneficiary of all this work of God. Does that encourage you? 
does that not make you wake up from your slumber? Does that not lift your weary spirit? Right? Calvin writes this, he says, He is not the guardian of our salvation for a single day or for a few days, but that he will take care of it to the end, so that he will conduct us, as it were, from the commencement to the termination of our course, and therefore he mentions the last resurrection. This promise is highly necessary for us who miserably groan under the great weakness of the flesh, of which every one of us is sufficiently aware. And at every moment, indeed, the salvation of the whole world might be ruined were it not that believers supported by the hand of Christ advance boldly to the day of resurrection. Let this, therefore, be fixed in our minds that Christ has stretched out his hand to us, that he may not desert us in the midst of the course, but that relying on his goodness, we may boldly raise our eyes to the last day. So you heard what Calvin wrote. Not only does the life of the Christian start by God's will, it is continued and is consummated by Christ's constant continuing care. The whole of everything is not dependent on man. The whole of everything regarding salvation is wholly dependent upon God, and that is good news. Praise God for that. Right? These are marvelous promises with the kind of assurance that accompanies nothing in this life. We invest in markets collapse. Right? We buy insurance and payouts fail. We, we take vitamins and Dink and still get sick. How much money have we wasted on vitamins? We take vitamins and still get cancer, right? But, but should your trust be in God, you are putting your trust in something unlike everything in this life that fails, right? You are trusting in the one who cannot fail to bring about every promise he has ever made. He does not lie. And he doesn't lack power. He can and will do all that he has set out to do. So those who believe in Jesus, who have come to the bread of life, have put themselves in an infallible position. Christ loses nothing. Christ raises up those given to him on that last day. The Father has made it so that those who believe in him have eternal life. And that faith comes by his determination and his creation, right? And Christ promises for those people, the resurrection will be to eternal life. It's beginning to end God's work, which should just make you fall down and weep with joy. <laughs> the Father has made God the Son the protector of your salvation. He did not give this job to some other man or some man who is a priest. He didn't give that job even to you. He gave it to his son because he is a man who is a sympathetic high priest, but also he is God and so cannot fail. 
Chosen by God, kept by Jesus for the resurrection. Chosen by God, kept by Jesus for the resurrection. That ought to put joy in your heart, no matter what you're suffering today, what fears you have, that should put joy in your heart. So lift up your heads, dear brothers and sisters. Right? What, what I mean, going back a chapter in Romans 8, to Romans to 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, <laughs> who's against us? I mean, it's almost just like he's laughing as he says that. It's so absurd that something would be against God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Did you see, hear that? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.